0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Mina Jabbarbin talking here. Today we have the lovely Eric Kimmel, writer of many picture books. He is talking to us from Portland, Oregon. Good morning, Eric. Welcome to Mina Jabbarbin talking here.
1: Good morning, Minna, And thank you so much for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time.
0: How have you been these days? How was your COVID-19 year? Would you like to elaborate?
1: It was a very tough year, but I got a lot of writing done because there was nothing to do, no distractions. I was sorry I didn't get to do school visits but we found a way to do a lot of them uh, online as zoom visits. So that sort of filled the gap. I usually like to travel to get new ideas for books and I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. but. I often say, you play the cards you're dealt, so we deal with what we have to deal with, and we find a way. Writers always find a way. It's never easy, and there's always some obstacle. You just have to figure a way to get around it. My advantage is, I don't need a lot of equipment. All I have to do is sit at my desk, and my imagination takes me places, so I don't have to expose myself to viruses in the fantasy world.
0: Yeah, we we do have that luxury. When did you uh, start writing?
1: The truth is, I knew I wanted to be a writer before I knew how to write. The person who did it for me was Dr. Seuss. When I was in kindergarten, our teacher read Dr. Seuss's, one of Dr. Seuss's great books, Horton Hatches the Egg. And I fell in love with that book and I wanted to hear it again and again. And I would beg our teacher, please, please read Horton Hatches the Egg by Dr. Seuss. I want to hear Horton Hatches the Egg by Dr. Seuss. I thought that was the title. (laughs) I had no idea where books came from. And I wasn't the only child in the class who was confused. So our teacher one day explained to us, no, 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 children, Horton Hatches the Egg is the title. That's the name of the book. By Dr. Seuss means there's a man. His name is Dr. Seuss, and he made this story. He wrote the story, he thought of the story, wrote it down, and he drew the pictures to go with it. And a person who makes a story is called an author. And I said to myself, oh, so that's where these books come from. I thought they just appeared out of the sky, (laughs) showed, showed up on the shelf someday. And I said, somebody writes them. Oh, okay. I want to do that. So even though I didn't know enough letters to write my name, you had to be able to write your name to get a library card. And I didn't get a library card until I was in the first grade. I knew then that that's what I wanted to be. No career ever seemed as exciting or as interesting as creating books and stories. And so uh, here here I am today, 70 years later, still doing what I wanted to do in kindergarten. I consider myself very lucky.
0: What a fantastic story. <laughs> and Eric, we have come a long way from the time that Dr. Seuss wrote those books. So much has been going on in this industry. But what a uh, revolution that was that um, children's books became uh, a genre, we've always had Hans Christian Andersen. We've had people like Tolstoy who wrote children's books, mm-hmm. children's stories. But I feel like uh, this man um, with all the criticisms and everything that's going on about him, he had a big hand in, in, in um, creating the industry. What do you think about that?
1: I think you're, you've put your finger on something very important. Dr. Seuss is a monumental figure. I, see, I seem to think it's almost silly to criticize because every writer writes in their time. And a lot of the conventions that oh, we find less than acceptable today were perfectly acceptable back then. And mm-hmm. you, you can't judge the past by the present otherwise you're not going to have anything just to give you an example when i was growing up tattoos were regarded as as extremely lower class if you were covered with tattoos you you belonged in the circus at the freak show I I mean, nobody who wasn't a sailor or a criminal would think of getting tattoos Mm -hmm. and nowadays you find just about everybody has them they're beautiful They're, they're a form of body art um So times and tastes change, and we have to be aware of that. I think parents and teachers are responsible for what they bring to children. We can't bring everything. So I would always tell the students in my children's lit class, which books do you recommend to children? Recommend the ones that you love, because your love will carry through in the way you present the story to them. And that's the important thing that we teach children. We don't teach children books, we teach them the love of reading. I -hmm. had a wonderful professor when I was in graduate school at the library school at the University of Illinois, Winifred Ladley, and uh, she was one of my my biggest mentors. And Mm -hmm. Mrs. Ladley always taught us, if in the process of teaching children to read, you teach them to hate reading, you haven't done them any favors. So we don't Mm -hmm. just teach the skills, we teach the love, we teach the enjoyment. Why do we learn to read? Not to take tests. We learn to read so that we have access to all the wisdom and wonder Mm -hmm. that's in books. And learning to read is the key to that. And that's what we want to get across to children. Mm -hmm. Of course, back in those days, you didn't have videos. You didn't have audio books. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. the whole industry has Mm -hmm. been turned on its head by technology and we yeah. have to take that into account. But the thing that always remains is the story. Tell me a story. Tell me a good story, mm-hmm. and I'll give you all my attention. And mm-hmm. that has never changed going back thousands of years. The story, the story, the story. And I think that is the heart of uh, writing for children. Tell them a story. Don't give them a message. Don't preach to them. Don't try to teach them Uh they see through those messages the propaganda the sermons but give me a story give me characters I relate to give me a problem that has to be solved and you've got me and I'll stay with your book with your story right to the very end and then I'll ask to hear another and that's the heart of it we're all storytellers
0: Mm -hmm.
1: storytelling existed long before writing did when people were sitting around campfires it's interesting I had um, two friends just visit us and they traveled in Europe, and they were in the uh, cave at Lescaut in France. Right. And they were telling us about the experience. They went deep into the cave, and the guide explained that these paintings were made uh, by the light of uh, oil lamps that uh, burned some kind of tallow or fat. Mm-hmm. And he lowered his uh, flashlight and made it flicker. And they looked around the walls and it seemed as if the animals were moving. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to think those magnificent paintings uh, came from a time when there were stories that went with them and people would go into this cave and the bowels of the earth by the flickering lights and they would see the stories come to life. And that's what happens in a picture book, and that's what mm-hmm. happens in a, in a video, that's what happens in a film. So mm-hmm. I think storytelling has been with us I'm, since the very beginning of human consciousness, you might say. I see it with myself. I'm just a lens. I tend to think that the story exists out there like a light, and mm-hmm. it shines through me. And Mm -hmm. I color the story with my own insights, my experience, my language, so that it becomes my story. But I don't really own that story. That Mm -hmm. story is out there. And I always Mm -hmm. tell children, if I write something that you admire and you want to uh, write your own version of it, go ahead. Because I always do. I combine stories. I take stories Mm -hmm. in different places. I move characters around. The story is fluid. It's alive. It's moving. It exists. It changes with every mm-hmm. telling and with every teller. So don't try Absolutely. to nail it down. And I often find when people insist on authenticity and right. they ask me, is that an authentic story? I said, yeah, it's it's an authentic story. It's a it real story. It comes from
0: within you. It comes from your yeah. passion. I want to go back to the time that Eric was a kindergarten student mm-hmm. and wanted to read those doctors that is so cute. I want, to, I want to know what happened after that. Did you keep writing books as you were in elementary school? Did you keep a, a notebook? How did the family and friends reacted towards your, any creative endeavors that you were doing as a 10 year old Eric, 15 year old Eric. I want to know that.
1: <laughs> well, I'm happy to tell you, and I'm sure you can relate to this Mina, because I, from what you've told me, your family was very similar to mine, even though they may have lived, you may have lived on the other side of the world. Parents, right. are, parents are always concerned about their children where I was growing up. Um, if you told your parents, I want to be a writer or a musician or an actor or anything creative, mm-hmm. they, they would look at you and they would say, "Are you? have you gone mad? You're <laughs> out of your mind. If those people don't make any money. You'll be living in the streets. You'll be a bum. <laughs> so forget, forget about that nonsense. You want to have a career where you will be able to pay the rent and have a mm-hmm. roof over your head. So I discovered that if you tell people you want to be a writer, just like you tell them you want to be an artist or an opera singer or anything like mm-hmm. that, um, you're not going to meet with a lot of enthusiasm if you come from a family like mine.
0: But Well, at least not in your family and my family. I've had all these guests that said, we were supported and given art supplies. And we're like, uh, okay. <laughs> I'm
1: glad you you were lucky. What I learned is, <laughs> unless you're looking for trouble, tell them you want to be a doctor. If you tell them yep. you want to be a doctor, they leave you alone. Yeah. <laughs> and so all the way through school, I took, I loved. I took a lot of uh, English classes and writing classes all the way through high school, and I took all the pre-med classes. Well, I got through them, let's say, you know, simply by working hard. My downfall was math because I, I was never a good math student, mm-hmm. even though my father was an accountant and my mother was a math major. Those math genes did not come down to me. So I told everybody I wanted to be a doctor, and they left me alone. And then when I got to college, chemistry, (laughs) chemistry was my downfall because you had to calculate how many molecules of this or that fit into this space. And that was math. And this was the days before uh, little calculators on phones. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't, I could never add numbers quickly and accurately in my head. So I failed chemistry. Oh, my parents were heartbroken. They called me up. They thought, uh, that I was just in despair because my medical career was over and I was going to myself secretly. I said, yes, yes, <laughs> now I don't have to be a doctor and I could uh, do what I want. So I, my two choices were to major in English or French and I chose English because uh, most of my friends were English majors. Now <laughs> that's one thing I regret because I love French And my French was, was never spoken French, but I could read it pretty well, though I've gotten a Mm. bit rusty and, uh, you know, and I majored in French. I probably could have spent my junior year in France and that would have been lovely. I love going to France, but I majored Mm -hmm. in English and then I finished college and Mm -hmm. all of a sudden it was okay. We had an expression when I was growing up, put up or shut up, um, Mm. all your life, you said you wanted to be a writer okay, college is over, Mm -hmm.
0: do something,
1: writers write, so write Mm -hmm. something. But although I read all these wonderful books, no one teaches you how to be a writer. Nobody knows Mm -hmm. anything about teaches you the business of publishing when you're in college. So I thought, okay, what do I do? So I went and got uh, some magazines, Writer's Market, Writer's Digest, uh, about submitting things for publication. And I thought, oh, okay, I can do that. Seems to me that you should start writing stuff. So I was looking <laughs> to buy stuff, really. Right. So I was writing everything. I wrote true romances. I wrote Westerns. I wrote crime stories. I wrote mystery and I think I was getting good with the true romances because editors were starting to give me feedback. They, they'd like to see more. So I think, had I kept at it, I might have been famous as a writer of Harlequin romances. <laughs> but I was <laughs> in my teaching classes, I took a class in children's literature because I needed a job, I may as well be a teacher. Mm-hmm. So I took uh, children's literature classes, and my wonderful teacher, Mrs. Ladley, I mean, introduced me to the world of children's books. And it was like, it was like Dorothy entering Oz, the Emerald City. Mm. Here were all these wonderful books. I thought that I was a good reader when I was in elementary school. No, there were like dozens upon dozens of books that I'd mm-hmm. never read, that I'd never heard of. And here they were all in front of me. And so I started reading and I thought, this is for me. This is what I'm supposed to do. I want to write Mm. children's books. So I started writing and uh, sending them out and trying my best, trying everything. And uh, I was at it for 15 years till about the mid-80s. And nothing really happened, though I published some small books with small presses. And then... uh,
0: So you were a teacher, um, Mm -hmm. professor, college Mm -hmm. professor, teacher. And then you were also writing, but nothing... Significant was getting published for Nothing's, 15 years. Nothing. It's happened. good to know. I want to repeat that. 15 years. Mm-hmm. I want to repeat that because people get out of school and then they write me an email. I just finished creative writing at UCLA or UCI. Please give me the name of your editor and your agent. And I, and please read one of my stories and tell me how I'm doing. And thank you so much for your time. So I love that. I love how. <laughs> I'm laughing. I can't help but nerve. <laughs> but they're so cute, you know, so and because I want to, Give them the chance that you need to listen to the podcast at least. Mm -hmm. You need to at least come to one of my book signings or one of Eric's book signings. (laughs) Ask one question. Go home, think about it. Listen to every writer and creative Mm -hmm. podcast. Start, you know, driving a forklift like. Kevin did or teach college like Mm -hmm. Eric did and then figure out your writing is called the practice of writing because it's practice makes perfect even though all of this sounds like sentences that you've heard over and over but this there's something to be said about that so my dear listener 15 years of teaching college 15 and 15 years of writing and getting rejected. This is Eric Kimmel, everyone. So go ahead, Eric. Continue. Well,
1: everything you've said, Minna, is oh so true. And when you think of it, it made me laugh because I think I think of the arrogance. Mm-hmm. This is a rough, tough business.
0: Mm-hmm. And you
1: will earn every bit of success that you get. You want to be a writer? good so do 500 million other people
0: mm-hmm.
1: and why should a publisher put their money into your project rather than something else mm-hmm. and my fr- my good friend ellen howard who's a, who's a wonderful writer has this quote you want to know what it's like to be a writer go to the bathroom hold your arm over the bathtub open a vein watch yourself bleed you have to be tough as nails you have to have Mm -hmm. the ego of an armadillo because disappointment and frustration and failure is going to be your lot it was so much easier I think when I started in 1968 than it is now and here's why because back then it really was so Nobody from nowhere could submit a manuscript. Of course, you had to type it yourself. It couldn't be a carbon copy. We didn't have computers where you press a button and you could print any number of copies. Mm-hmm. You would send it into an editor with a self-addressed return with a self-addressed stamped env- return envelope
0: mm-hmm. and
1: the editor or somebody at the publishing office would read it, maybe, and they would nearly always respond. And sometimes the response was just a uh, a form a printed letter. You know, thank you for your thank you for your submission. Unfortunately, is not quite right for our list. We wish you luck with another publisher. See, I know these by heart because I got so many of them. Yes, me too.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's part of the industry, and that just means, well, you really didn't come very close to the mark. But mm-hmm. if you if the editor bothered to sign the form. If Mm -hmm. you got a personal note, a personal letter, some Mm -hmm. suggestions for improving your manuscript, an invitation to send something else. Well, that was a step forward. So there's a whole science to reading rejection letters rather than to to assume that they're just saying yes or no. There's a Mm -hmm. lot of gray area in between. Nowadays, Mm -hmm. you don't get a response at all. I think it's Mm -hmm. because publishers are overwhelmed and anybody can write any number of copies and send them out to every publisher. And that's why the industry has closed down to a great extent. Uh, In other words, we do not, we do not accept unsolicited manuscripts. Unless I know you and have asked you to send me something Mm -hmm. or you're agented. Uh, No, I don't want to read it. And it goes right in the trash. And if we, if we have no reaction, we don't want to see any more. You'll never hear from us. The expression yeah. "silence is the new no" um, doesn't really give beginning writers much to uh, work with if they want to develop their uh, their skills. Mm-hmm. So this, in this way, the times today are different than they were uh, in my era because at least you could use your rejections as a way of pointing the way forward. So I, you know, yeah. I also tell you know, tell aspiring writers, this is a tough business. It's like, I want to be a musician. Uh, Very few actually make a living from it.
0: Or like, I want to be, I would just want to go to Hollywood and become an actress. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Good luck. Because I just finished (laughs) Juilliard and people think that maybe we're arrogant when we tell them that, listen, you need to just keep writing every day and keep Mm -hmm. finding out more and more. And they really think that, oh, who does she think she is? Or who does he think he is? But I'm working every day. And if something gets published, I'll just do 500 somersaults. One time I told my friend that I used to be an architect and now I write books. And he said, so you actually basically like torturing yourself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's right. He's right. Yeah, so, but it's the rush when a
0: book is successful the rush. and
1: it's accepted and children write to you and say, we yeah. love it because children are the best audience in the world.
0: So after 15 years of writing and and teaching, uh, when was the when was your first break?
1: Oh, well, this is a funny story Um. I was teaching in the United States Virgin Islands on the island of St. Thomas, and my mother sent me an advertisement from the New York Times that Harper and Row, one of the major publishers at the time, it's now become Harper Collins, was looking for people to write children's books. Now, that's almost unheard of, that a publisher would advertise for people to write children's books. Um, but back in those days uh, children's publishing was a very minor field and all of a sudden there was federal money available to improve school libraries so there was money for children's books and publishers were looking for people to write them so i've been writing true confessions and all kinds of things like that westerns mysteries and i thought well i'll try my hand at that and so uh, i wrote to the editor at harper And I said, I write children's books. I lied. I'd never written one, though I'd read lots of them. (laughs) And what what would you like to see? What can I show you? And they said, oh, send us one of your books. Well, now I had a problem because (laughs) I couldn't send them the true romances of the detective stories. They weren't for children. I had to come up with a children's book. And I had a part-time job working in the public library. And uh, one evening, I was working the desk, and a man returned a book that I still remember. It. My career started with this book. It was by an English author, Philip Longworth, and it was called The Cossacks. Well, I always liked Russian history, so I opened the book and I started reading. Hey, this is pretty exciting. And I thought, well, I know what I'll do. I'll send them a chapter you know, based on this book that I just read. So I forget what the chapter was. It was guys on horseback chasing each other around. And uh, I called it chapter eight and I sent it in. And I thought they would say, oh, this is good. You're a very good writer. Uh, Now write something about a fuzzy bunny, you know. Mm -hmm, (laughs) And they wrote back and said, oh, we like this chapter very much. Send us the rest of the book. (laughs) But Uh there was no book. (laughs) (laughs) So, And I had an editor on the line, something I've been trying to make happen for years. And all of a sudden, I thought, okay, I got to do this. So I started writing. I started writing a book from the middle out. I always tell writers, mm-hmm. you can write from the beginning to the end, or maybe you can start at the end and work to the beginning. But it's a very bad idea to write a book from the middle out, especially when you don't know what's supposed to happen or who these people are. How they got it. So it was a royal it was a royal mess. But, hey, I was learning. And the funny story is. We were living with the, my mother-in-law at the time at her house in Red Bank, New Jersey. We had come back from, uh, from the Virgin Islands. It was just about to start graduate school in September. And I was typing away on my portable typewriter at my mother-in-law's kitchen table, trying to write this book, when our friend Jerry came by and he said, hey, there's going to be this fabulous rock concert in upstate New York. I'm able to borrow the truck from work. We could throw in sleeping bags and food and beer and whatever we want. We'll drive up to the concert. We could stay there for three days. We could live in the truck and then we'll drive home. I said, Oh, that sounds fantastic. Who, who's performing? And he said, uh, Crosby Stills and Nash. Oh, uh, the who? Oh. oh Then Janis Joplin, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, Big Brother and the Holding Company, oh, these are all my favorites. We got to go, we got to go. And then I thought, nope, you want to be a writer? Writers write. They don't go running around uh, to rock concerts. So I stayed at the table, and I worked on my book, and that's how I missed Woodstock.
0: No. (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) Well, I used, to, I used to tell kids that story, and now they look blankly at me and they say, "What's Woodstock?" <laughs> so
0: oh my god! Priorities. <laughs> so anyway,
1: that became my first novel, The Tartar Sword. Which, now that I read it, I sort of cringe. I said, oh, did you write that? That's bad. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Considering I didn't know what I was doing, I think it was a pretty good book. And it even won an award. And I got to go to Chicago. And uh, I was just a graduate student at the time. Lovely award, Friends of American Writers. And with the money, I bought myself an eight-track tape player for my car. But that wasn't my break, because books came and went, and I had Mm maybe about four or five under my belt. The real breakthrough was I wanted to write a good Hanukkah story, because all the ones that were uh, available, even from the time I was growing up, were sweet, but they were also boring. I grew up in my home. My grandma lived with us, and she was an old country grandma who came to the U.S. when she was in her thirties, well set in her ways. Grandma was yeah. really from another age because mm-hmm. she was uh, she grew up in Austria Hungary, and mm-hmm. in her in her heart she was a monarchist. She thought the world went off the tracks when uh, they kicked out both kaisers. Mm-hmm. So if the Kaiser had come back, the world would be right. She wouldn't even mention mm-hmm. World War one. It, it upset her too much. Wow So anyway, Grandma was a great storyteller, and all her stories though were scary because they were usually about kids who didn't listen to Grandma. and they came <laughs> to a bad end. <laughs> I, I tell I love telling kids these endings. They never ended and they lived happily ever after they ended like this. And they found them in the woods in the spring after the snow melted. <laughs> Ooh, and the yeah. Other, and the other oh one Oh, my was,
0: God. And they were never seen again.
1: And my mother used to tell her mom, you know, you don't stop telling the children those stories. You're scaring them. And yeah. they did. But we kept coming back for more. Because they were I such know. good stories. Yeah. And, um. <laughs> But I thought, you know, my grandma could tell a better story than some of these books. So I thought, let me, let me combine some things. I started playing with the idea.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so this, this is why I have a big problem with the whole issue of authenticity. Because I think it puts us in a shackle. Whereas we should be free to borrow and uh, utilize whatever's around us. So mm-hmm. I always liked... Uh, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. I always thought that was a magnificent story, Mm -hmm. especially ever since I saw the old black and white film with Alistair Sim when I was a kid, long before I was able to read the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And it intrigued me because there's nothing creepy about Christmas, but Dickens makes it creepy. So I thought maybe I could do something with a Hanukkah story like that. (laughs) <laughs> and then uh, I came across a Ukrainian story. Ukrainians have wonderful stories. And one of the stories was about a goblin who lives in a lake. And I thought, hmm, why don't I take that goblin and I'll multiply him by eight? And I'll throw in a Jewish folk hero, Herschel of Ostropol. And, uh, you know, he has to get rid of all these goblins who won't let people have fun for the Hanukkah holiday. And that Mm -hmm. was the bones of my book, Herschel and the Hanukkah Goblins. Mm. Wrote it out. I thought it was a great story. Nobody wanted it. I couldn't give that story away. Why? Because it didn't look like all the other books. Publishers can be very conservative. You You know, where does this fit in? And if it doesn't fit, they really don't know what to do with it. So, I was having no luck with it, it went out, it came back, it went out, it came back, went out, it came back. But then my my dear friend and, and, oh, wonderful supporter, Mariana Karras at Cricket Magazine, she passed away this year, several months Mm. ago. And she was a giant in, in American children's literature because myself and so many other writers began our careers with cricket. And uh, when nobody would wanted a story from me, Mariana would buy a story. And she mm. always encouraged me, keep going, keep trying. And she called me up and she said, do you have a good Hanukkah story? I need a Hanukkah story for the December 85 issue. Uh, mm. I'd I be singer, great writer, Nobel Prize winner. Uh, promised me a story but he's gotten busy and he just can't do it I said well I don't have anything just this funny old story that nobody wants I'll send it to you and if you like it you can use it so I sent her my story Herschel and the Hanukkah goblins Mm -hmm. she said oh I like it but it's too long you're gonna have to get rid of some of those goblins so as Marianna later told me an amateur writer says what Cut my precious work? That's like asking me to cut off one of my limbs. <laughs> A professional writer says, How many words do I have to cut? 500? Okay, chop, chop. So I right. chopped out the middle goblins and stitched it together. And it was published in the December 85 issue of Cricket Magazine. And Trina Hyman liked the story. She was art director there and she illustrated it. And uh, the person who was to become my great editor and dear friend, Marjorie Kyler, was in the hospital having a baby, and she read the story in Crick, and she said, oh, I want that one for a picture book. And Trina, who knew Marjorie, also wanted another crack at it as a uh, full-color picture book, and so uh, they sent me a contract, mm-hmm. and boom, I had a career.
0: Muzzle uh, yeah. is that right?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. You have a good, you you got that word. I wish I knew some Farsi. You'll have to teach me. But then the second thing that happened was Marjorie said, "Do you know a good animal story?" Because I work with a wonderful artist, Janet Stevens, mm-hmm. who loves to put animals in people's clothes and in people's furniture. Mm-hmm. And I said, Janet Stevens, oh my gosh, she's one of the best illustrators around. And I thought. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have a chance to pitch a story to Janet Stevens, an animal story. What's the best animal story I know? And it was easy. It was Anansi in the Moss-Covered Rock, because I heard mm. that story when I was living in the Virgin Islands. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote out that story, and uh, the rest is history. That's become a classic.
0: Yeah. Um, and Gorgeous
1: so I, I, mm-hmm. I I had two solid books under my belt, and I had a career. And the rest was keep on going, keep doing what you're doing. Lovely. But Lovely. you see, Minna, I broke yeah. all the rules.
0: Or there are no rules. There are maybe. no rules. That's there are right. no rules. You, it's right. wonderful that creative mm-hmm. lives are created by us mm-hmm. just from our passion and not giving up.
1: That's right. You're on your own journey.
0: There are no rules of becoming an actor or becoming a writer.
1: You have to imagine a long corridor with lots of doors and they're all locked, but you have to believe that one is open. So you go down that corridor, you try every door, you're looking for the one that will open.
0: Actually, it's a dream that I had once. Oh, really? Really? Yeah. It's true. A huge corridor with doors that I kept opening and opening. It made me feel really good when I woke up because every door I opened, I felt better. If you've never heard of Eric Kimmel, I don't know where you've been, but you can definitely go to his website and you you're just a born storyteller. You are oh well thank so. you that's, that's a huge
1: compliment but aren't we like aren't you we need all? my
0: compliment
1: <laughs> every compliment is precious
0: isn't it though <laughs>
1: It is. especially when it comes from kids who love a story passionately and oh they'll God. read a book till it falls apart I, when uh, I was about seven years old my uncle gave me a copy of Grimm's fairy tales and I mm-hmm. literally read it to pieces because I love those stories so much he really understood me, Uncle Abe. Well, he came to the house one day and he had, I still have them, two enormous volumes of the Bible illustrated mm. by a very prominent uh, Victorian British artist, Jacques Tissot. I mean, the pictures were amazing. You know, I loved, mm. I loved reading uh, the stories and I loved Joshua, the book of Judges, Kings, 1st, 2nd Samuel. I loved all of those. Why? Because those are the most violent parts of the Bible, and she so illustrated them with all these lurid illustrations. So, uh, in uh, Noah's the story of Noah and the flood, you have all these naked people on a raft, you know,
0: going off the mm-hmm. waterfall. Um, Best stories ever. They're <laughs> in so there, people. Yeah, read the Bible.
1: <laughs> yeah, they read the book, but they they don't read it. They talk about it,
0: but they, they don't, don't read it. it.
1: Because if they did, you wouldn't let a kid near the Bible because Mm. it's blood and it's sex. And with Jacques Tissot, Mm -hmm. you had pictures of people carrying heads. I still, one of my favorite pictures, uh, I think it was somewhere in the book of Samuel, where uh, they're wiping out the uh, last descendants of King Saul's family. And there are these two tough guys in armor holding swords. And there on the pavement in front of them is somebody's head. (laughs) After <laughs> all this yeah. stuff they gave was, was given to me, an eight year old. And when yeah. my parents would say, What are you reading? I'd say, The Bible. And they'd say, Oh, how nice. That's wonderful. Keep going. Oh, little right. did they know what I <laughs> was reading. So I yeah. have a very savage imagination, and Grimm's fairy tales fit right into that because yeah. a lot of those stories are scary.
0: These mm-hmm. are fantastic. Um, Recording symbols and motives of literature, yeah. mythology, art. And, you know, here's another advice for people who want to write uh, read the know, Bible. Well, read the
1: Bible, read all the traditions, stories, and cultures yes. you can get your hands on mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they're wonderful stories and they mm. teach you how a story is constructed. These exactly. stories didn't last for hundreds, thousands of years. For mm-hmm. nine, The reason was because they touched something mm-hmm. within us all. Absolutely. and the fantastic thing is they can move from culture to culture so you don't have to know the original language or really know mm-hmm. anything about the culture that created it you nope. just identify with the character and mm-hmm. enjoy the story and accept it as the writer presents it to you that you know I've, we've said in the past you know mm-hmm. iran has a magnificent uh, literature that goes back thousands of years and it's just mm-hmm. about unknown here in the West. So does Mexico. We never see these books here. It's yeah. kind of a cultural myopia. You know, all we know is our own little world, but this is not the only world. And there's treasures yeah. all around us, but we don't bother to pick them up.
0: Let's talk about a little bit about this well, own voices thing that you wanted to talk about.
1: Yeah, well, I, my again, my view is anybody can do anything. If you want to write it, do it. You might not do it well. You have the right to try. You have the right to fall flat on your face. Nobody can tell you. And I think it comes from a view about what art is and what writing is. Mm -hmm. And my view is it's art for art's sake. I tell a story. You can like it or not like it. But Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily set out to teach a message. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm just telling a tale. And you can make of it what Mm -hmm. you will. Mm-hmm. um and i think so many books that we see today have a message they're very didactic and i think that's a very dangerous oh, view yes. that books oh. are supposed to teach you something well they can but sometimes the message goes a lot deeper when uh, literature serves politics or when art serves politics watch out because then mm-hmm. it's going to become propaganda. And I've always told this story. I did a school visit in uh, the Anglo-American school in Moscow. Uh, one of the teachers, just a wonderful guy, his name was Stuart Shipman. Uh, you know, we went out one evening and we took the subway. We stopped at the uh, Ukrainska station, the Moscow subways. Uh, they look a little shopworn now, but they were magnificent. The Mm -hmm. public spaces under the Soviets were amazing because life Mm -hmm. was so hard and grim. So you got to partake of all this wealth and beauty when you're in a public space like a subway station. And the Ukrainska Mm -hmm. station is covered with these uh, mosaic murals celebrating the friendship of the Russian and Ukrainian people. And Mm -hmm. I was so astonished by this, the obscenity of this, that, you know, I really felt nauseous. Because, mm. I mean, what friendship? I, I mean, mm. this was at a time that uh, the Soviets were coming into Ukraine, hauling mm-hmm. off the farmers, taking all their grain, leaving them mm-hmm. there was mass starvation. Like something like 20 million people died.
0: Mm -hmm. And this Mm -hmm. whole
1: subway was built with slave labor. Many of these were the farmers that were pulled from their homes uh, and forced to work as slave labor, digging these tunnels. And -hmm. when they die, they just threw them in a hole and covered Mm. them up. They're still down there. Mm. Um, So it's not art serving the revolution. Art becomes the slave of the revolution. Stalin killed uh, the writers and poets if he decided he did Mm -hmm. And so I think we need to, you know, keep our independence. You know, don't tell me what the rules are or you have to go in this box. You know, if this Mm -hmm. is your background, you can only write this. You can write anything you want and you can accept it or you can reject it. But don't tell me I have to write this. Don't put me in a box. Don't put me in a little ghetto.
0: We all get typecasted a little bit in, uh, in the business, like, you know, whatever Actress who is always playing the romantic comedy will always be asked to play in the romantic comedy. Sometimes she she says, can you please give me the the role of a villain because I can just prove myself or...
1: it It becomes a trap people assume you can't do anything else or you keep doing this because this is successful rowling tried writing detective stories and they're very good Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. they're not harry potter so success can be a shackle too as writers you know what should you write you should write the book you want to write write about the book you care about my editor marjorie kyler after she retired we were having lunch. I happened to be in New York, and we got together. And this is when Harry Potter was at its height. I don't think the last Harry Potter book had been published yet. Mm-hmm. Marjorie said something interesting. This is an interesting comment coming from somebody who spent her entire career in publishing. She said, there's no question that those books are magnificent. They will be classics. They'll be around for mm-hmm. as long as there's a children's literature. She mm-hmm. said, but sometimes I think they were a mixed blessing. Uh, Before Harry Potter, we had this funny little industry that was off in a corner and nobody really knew we were here. We didn't make Mm -hmm. all that much money and nobody paid too much attention to us. Mm
0: -hmm. But
1: a monster books like the Harry Potter books come along And all of a Mm -hmm. sudden, the people who run gigantic media corporations said, Mm -hmm. oh, there is big money to be made in children's Mm -hmm. book. Mm -hmm. So maybe we should be looking at it as a potential source of major revenue. And it used to be that a children's book that sold five to 10,000 copies was a very successful book. Now that's not enough. We want a book that sells five hundred thousand copies. Mm. We're looking at the uh, um, a, a sale of media rights, videos, uh, you name it. Now, rather than uh, an editor who just goes by you know intuition, like in the old days, um, I think this is a good book, and I think this writer has talent. And you know, maybe his first two books may not be successful. We want to bring him along. Now it's okay. What's the formula? What are we writing about now? High school vampires. Okay, that uh, Twilight was successful. Let's find another Twilight and another Twilight and another Twilight, and uh, right, you, you have a zillion vampire series until you beat the uh, the formula to death, and then you find another formula. Harry Potter yeah. goes with something else. I I always remember, you know, just from being in the in the field for a long time, uh, and this is where I learned there were there are no rules. It used to be. Children are not interested really in reading about children in foreign countries. They're Hmm. not really interested about reading about children in school. And they are certainly not interested in big fat books about children in foreign countries going to school. (laughs) And they don't like long, heavy, complicated fantasies. J.R.R. Tolkien was the last word in that. We don't need another. And that was the rule. And then all of a sudden, Harry Potter comes along. Where are your rules? They're in the trash bin, which shows (laughs) you there were never any rules to begin with. There will be another Harry Potter, but it won't look like Harry Potter. It won't be anything like Harry Potter. And it will happen because an editor takes a chance on something that doesn't seem to fit in anywhere but the editor feels so strongly about this wonderful book that I just want to see it in print, and I'm willing to put my reputation on the
0: line for it. Hopefully, (laughs) and I think this is happening almost every day, like, you know, with the advent of uh, graphic novels. You just told me that you just finished your first one.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Talk to us about it, because this is happening every day. Graphic novels or something that that editors are taking chances on them because it's kind of a new thing, but then they're understanding there's a huge market for it. So there are editors that are going on a limb every day, Mm -hmm. and we love you, we appreciate you, we want (laughs) to send you our hugs because most of you are told by your bosses, because, I mean, it's important for people who are listening to this to know, people have bosses basically my boss has a boss and their boss has a boss Mm -hmm. and the thing is we don't have bosses you go willy-nilly write your own thing Mm -hmm. you throw it around and a lot of people like what you wrote but one person says i'm going to champion this and some of them are also no matter how small or how big the house is you have a boss you may have one boss you may have five bosses but they're taking chances for this so tell us about your graphic novel.
1: Oh, my! Gra- I got interested in graphic novels um, when my agent asked me if I'd ever done one. I said, no, not really. And I don't know too much about them because when I was growing up, we didn't have graphic novels. These were comic books and they were not respectable. And if your parents or your teachers caught you with one, they'd tear it up. There was a hierarchy of literature. If you were going Jeez. to read, read serious books. This was right. this was trash, and oh. uh, for a long time it was considered trash, and then all of a sudden, with things like uh, Mouse and uh, you know other our crumbs work, it started to become a respectable form.
0: Hugo, yeah, I mean, yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean they, this is what this is what happens. You build a certain. Uh, I guess a a readership of a certain size and they Mm -hmm. want more and more and all of a sudden you have a new genre. When I was getting started, I just asked my friends, okay, what do I read? What what are the the best books around? And they Mm -hmm. recommended lots of titles. And Mm -hmm. I came across a few that really were magnificent and could hold their own with Mm -hmm. just about any other genre in the field. So, I mean, there's no question that this is a literary genre. Mm -hmm. And I was curious about it. Well, Jennifer said, have you ever done a graphic novel? I said, no, I've read them. I'm curious about them, but I I really have no experience with them. So she said, I have an artist uh, who's interested in getting some stories together. See if you could, could write something for him. So I thought she sent me some samples of his work, um, know, I'm not going to mention his name because, you know, just out of courtesy, mm-hmm. it's nothing. This was really good stuff. And I, I liked his style. And I thought, OK, he's looking for adventure stories. So what have I always wanted to do? I always loved the story of Sinbad the Sailor. So how do we write one of these things? I asked around and the close, best information I could get was this sort of like a movie script. So I downloaded a program for writing movie scripts and I fooled mm-hmm. around with that and got the hang of it and was able to write dialogue and set scenes. And we sent it, I sent it into my agent and the artist liked it and he worked out some, uh, a few pages that were really, really good. This would have been fun, but then he showed it to his editor and the editor said, and this makes perfect sense. He said, Look, you have two books going so far with the same character that's becoming a series if you go off on this other tangent with somebody else you may lose your fans and you may not get them back so you're better Mm. off continuing with the series you're already working on Mm. and from I was disappointed but from a professional point of view that made perfect sense so we didn't go ahead with the project but thank you for giving me the opportunity but mm. now I was hooked. So I started asking around, there, is there an artist who would like to work with uh, an author? Mm. And uh, I was connected with a very talented young artist who was trying to make his name in the field. Uh, his name is Dove Smiley. And uh, he's a graduate, which could you believe there's a college where you can go to study to how to make graphic novels?
0: And my like, gosh, my
1: gosh!
0: that's hell? lovely. We didn't have that in those days.
1: <laughs> no, I, I, can, I, I can imagine telling my father, yeah, I want to go to college to learn how to make comic books
0: i know but but now we kind of sound like those parents that say we used to walk to our school in snow with a shovel and we now we sound like
1: those those people well you're absolutely right we do we sound like those we do you know why it's because when you're old because we're old that's why. And you also know how you also know how tough the world is.
0: I know. And, and then yeah, when we can. got there, everyone was frozen and we had to <laughs> <laughs> And now they have graphic novels.
1: Have novel that come, yeah. <laughs> it's comic books. You would tear them up and throw them away. Now you go to school to study them?
0: I know. <laughs> and we burned those graphic novels. <laughs> to... In the school, so we can defrost the teacher. Yeah, right. Throw
1: throw them in the stove. No, it's it's a completely different world. So I connected with Dove, and we started kicking around ideas. I sent him an old story I had done years ago that was published in Cricket, and he liked it. And he said, "Let's work on this." Usually, when you do a picture book, I write the story, and then. Working with the editor, you know how it works. I mean, you yeah, work with yeah. the editor, and yeah. once you have the text, the artist creates the illustrations. Yeah. But in this case, I, the artist and I were partners, so it was sort of right. like a tennis match. I'd throw the ball mm-hmm. to Dove, and he'd give me some ideas, and I'd throw some ideas back. It's, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? I would contribute. He would contribute. I mean, when the book is published, we'll say, story by me. Art by Dove Smiley. But the truth is, it's hard to say where one began and one Mm. ended because the interaction was so intense. Whereas with picture books, there's no interaction at all. But congratulations to you. It sure was fun. This one will be coming out probably in October. We'll see what happens.
0: I'll have to have you then again because I'll never get tired of talking to you. (laughs) <laughs> that one of the things that that you wanted to talk about was should should the writer be limited to their own experience gender and ethnicity and i think we touched upon that
1: yeah mm-hmm. i don't think they've sold three copies in 10 years nobody reads them but i read them and i laugh i say hey, that's pretty good and sometimes <laughs> sometimes you just have to my view is you can't tell a writer what to write a writer exactly. can look and say, okay, if I do this, if I go this way, my chances of getting something into print are pretty nil right now.
0: Mm-hmm. But you
1: can certainly write it, change the form. I mean, you can mm-hmm. do what you want. You're captain of this ship. And if that's the story you love and that's the story that you want to express, then go ahead and do it. and Don't worry about the rest and what yeah. will be will be. I've written lots of stories that I love. In fact, some of my favorites I've never gone anywhere. I self-published them on Amazon because I like them so much. Do it. I love and it. Know there's not going to be a payoff, but just do it. That's what writers do. It. Writers write. I
0: agree with you. Another thing that you brought up was the issue of demise of the story picture book mm-hmm. for older readers. Picture books are works of art. There's so much That's in there. Right.
1: That's right. Times and tastes change. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And when I started, uh, a picture book was seen as an important blend of story and art. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, having met some of the great artists of the time, the wonderful illustrators, several who became friends of mine, you appreciate the passion uh, of the artists that they brought to the picture book. Mm -hmm. I mean, My friend Leonard Everett Fisher is a gallery Mm. artist. I mean, you want one of his paintings, it'll cost you a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Mm. But his passion was picture books. Mm -hmm. Why? Because this is a way to introduce children who may never get to a major city or walk into a major museum, but Mm -hmm. putting great art into their hands. It, was also, it also worked for the librarian, too, because when you're doing a library program for older kids, what can you share with them? Well, you can share a picture book, a mature story mm-hmm. that they'll appreciate and understand, with great mm-hmm. pictures that they want to see and which they want to uh, check out and take home uh, for themselves so they could look at them close up. Mm-hmm. Uh, when children approach, when you watch children reading a picture book, uh, they study the pictures as intensely as they study the words, perhaps more so. And the great picture books were a blend of art and uh, text that went together, that functioned as a whole. It wasn't just, Absolutely. well, here's a picture, and we stick the words on the page. It's a matter of design. Where do the <laughs> words go? How do they move the story forward? How do they work with the uh, the illustration?
0: and the concepts Mm -hmm. book i mean the shell silverstein books so many of them were just (laughs) masters of philosophy and concepts oh yes every adult should have yeah but it's
1: interesting that you mentioned silverstein because his style is very very simple
0: i'm in love with it (laughs)
1: well you, you have good taste but you take a book like the giving tree well what is it about yeah. And some will say, this is about love, unselfish love, completely given and asking yeah. nothing in return. And others say, this is horrible. That tree is this guy just steps on the tree, takes everything from her. It's like this exploiting male. And that's the story of women in our society. It's a terrible book. I came from a golden age in children's picture book publishing, and we thought it would last forever, we seem to have lost the concept of developmental stages. And when I look at some of the things going on in curriculum these days, I say, know, did everybody forget about Jean Piaget? So what's the right answer? Well, there isn't a right answer. You as the reader bring an answer, if there is one, to the encounter with the book. And Silverstein, he's not going to tell you which is the right answer, because maybe there isn't a right answer. Maybe you just have to think about it, which is the point of literature and art, to make you think, uh, rather than to give you a canned answer that uh, you can go out and preach to somebody else. And, you know, that's what you find with uh, with all books. They they don't preach at you. They fascinate you. They make you think. But what is it all about? Well, you have to think that through. You'll come up with your own answer if you do. The problem with the picture books is the world changed and Mm -hmm. you had this you have the series book, which is great. Um Mm -hmm. but with the rise of series books and I can read books, the pressure to get kids to read earlier and earlier uh starts to build. You know, in uh, I hope this is still true, but in mm-hmm. Scandinavia, reading instruction doesn't begin till children are seven years old because they feel that some children are ready and then some children are not. Um, children have different stages, and they don't have some concepts until mm-hmm. they mature. And maturation, you cannot mm-hmm. teach it. You'd be better off just waiting. Uh, some children are just not ready to read at uh, five years old, but we want them to read at four instead of uh, just holding back and letting them uh, proceed at their own pace. And then there's the pressure. My kid is reading real books rather than picture books. So all of a sudden, we have Mm. picture books geared for very, very young children, because when they get Mm -hmm. beyond that, they're into into series books, or they're into I can read books, and nothing wrong with that. But the picture book for the older child sort of fades away there's no uh we have fewer and fewer libraries and librarians and their budgets are limited so publishers say well who's buying these books and this is a market that's fading so mm-hmm. they don't publish as many that's really the, the problem that uh, that we're dealing with that the story picture book is overlooked it's all yeah. picture books are soon to be baby books
0: somewhere along the line of teaching children how to read we became too literal and we got rid of literature I think literature suffered and I think picture book as an art form suffered that's why people give themselves the right to dissect a work of art like the giving tree and say what is it about (laughs) well okay But if it's a Rothko at the Museum of Modern Art, nobody talks about it like that. But all of a sudden, if it's a show Silverstein and it's put in the children's book department, mm-hmm. then we all can rag on that. It's a piece of art. Mm-hmm.
1: It, yeah. it is. It is. And stop looking for an answer. Stop looking for a message. Your appointment was very well taken. A lot of it has to do with testing in school. Uh, We want to get our test scores of our kids up. So reading becomes skill and drill. And a lot of the fun goes out of reading. I had a friend who was a uh, wonderful fifth grade teacher. He's left the profession. The last straw was he used to read aloud to his uh, fifth graders. You know, they would work their way through a novel that he picked, and oh, he did all sorts of things with them—Ray right? Bradbury stories—and mm. it's some wonderful, wonderful uh, conversations and discussions. And one day, the teachers, his principal, came to him and said, "David, you can't spend this much time reading to the kids. You've got to work on their reading." And he said, "You mean I can't read books to kids? I've got to give them to—I've t- got to teach them reading skills." And the principal said, yep, that's it. we got to get the test scores up. So all of a sudden, mm. reading becomes mm. testing. You, why do we read? We read mm. for the test. And the books that we read aren't necessarily books. They're texts, books that are designed to teach you some sort of skill yeah. or content. Yeah. And yeah. those those are not the books you and I are talking about. Those are not the books you and I create. Um, We don't write to teach somebody a lesson or to develop skills. We write to share a story. I uh, had my agent ask an editor, "Well, what kind of books are you looking for in terms of picture books? Because at this point, the market was really shrinking. And so the editor told her, she she said, your reader is three to five years old and no more than 500 words. So, There you're writing for a very young child in a very small space. And a book like that really is a vehicle for the artist, where the pictures carry the story and uh, the text, if there is one, are really uh, captions that go with the pictures, which is a legitimate form. And some wonderful things have been done with it. But it cuts off the upper end, which is the story that's written for older children. The other, the other sad thing about uh, the fading of the story picture book for older kids, is that in many cases the picture book was the only exposure to really great art uh, mm. that children would encounter.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, if you live in a big yes. city, well, there are museums there. If you can get yeah. somebody to take you there, or you can find your way there yourself, or you yeah. have some sort of contact. But in lots of uh, places and in lots of homes, this is all the art you're going to see if it's not on yeah. television. You think it, of children who have been inspired just by looking at pictures
0: and storybooks. We're that becoming would... a literal society. It's supposed to be about literature, not oh, literal.
1: That's a good it's... point. That's a good point. I agree with you 100%. It worries and, uh, me. Yeah. I, I think another, another issue is... You were mentioning your father telling you stories. And I grew up with my grandma telling me stories, Grimm's fairy tales and reading my book, getting my stories from books or from the people around me. Nowadays, kids get it from a screen. You know, librarians are less apt to read yeah. a story to kids and play a video. And you can't interact with a video. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. magnificent. It's well yeah. done, beautifully read by some very fine actors. And no interaction. Yeah. Um, the screen is not going to teach the child. The screen. Well, we had the uh, with the COVID year of COVID, learning from a screen, doesn't go so well. And what is more precious than a parent sharing a story, reading a story aloud at bedtime with a child? And the other it's thing beautiful. about controlled vocabularies is. Children are capable of understanding far more uh, than we give them credit for. Um, Children can understand, have a much larger listening vocabulary than they have a reading vocabulary.
0: But when somebody says, there was this beautiful (laughs) parent in this amazing golden cage in the merchant's shop. My four-year-old eyes just went, I could see it all. Of course. And then 40 years later.
1: It's these memories that we have that we build on. You fall in love with the the story. Yeah. And you want to share the story. And you're a link in a chain that goes back thousands of years. Where did that story come from? Who knows? I have a wonderful story. Let me share this with you. Please. My first wife's grandma was a wonderful woman. Annie had, she didn't have much education, though she was very bright. Her father pulled her out of school when she Mm. finished elementary school. She spent her whole life working in factories, you know, really low-level, miserable, crummy jobs. Mm. And her birthday was coming. So I said, I said, Nanny, what can I get you for a present? What would you like? And she thought about it a minute. And she said, could you find me a copy of uh, Evangeline by uh, by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow and I said oh sure I'll find it so I went and uh, got her a copy the complete works of Longfellow and Mm -hmm. uh, I found Evangeline I marked it with a little bookmark so when she got it she started to read it this is the forest primeval and You know, a smile came to her face, and I just had to ask her. I said, uh, why did you want this poem? I mean, what does it mean to you? Hmm. And she had this hard, scrabble life, but she looked me in the eye, and she said, it let you know there was something better than what you had. Hmm. So even if your life is hard and there isn't much love or beauty in it, and uh, everything is drab and crummy. That's not the ultimate reality. That these visions of, of beauty and hope still exist. They're not just dreams. And if you can imagine them, then one day they will come true. If not for you, then for your children or your grandchildren. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, her great-grandson has won four Emmys. He's a, he's a, a video cinematographer. Yeah. And and it's so, you know, what to, what does literature do for us? Well, it helps us over the hard times. It makes us think, it makes us examine the world that we live in and come to our own conclusions. And they aren't just mere stories. They're the building blocks of life. And I think that's what's so important.
0: I'm speaking with Eric Kimmel, the writer of hundreds of books. Please (laughs) go and visit him on his website. I will never get tired of talking to Eric. Um, (laughs) We can go on having a five-hour podcast, but I think that everybody will be exhausted by then, except for me, because I love to hear his voice. Uh, Eric, to bring this to an end, what's next?
1: Well, the next one, the graphic novel, is called Shield of the Maccabees. Hmm. And um, that should be out in October. There's another. There's some picture books. One is called Miriam and the Sasquatch. That's coming out probably at the same time. Then hmm. there's another one called uh, Who's the Best? Who's the Best? Is that a picture book? That's a picture book, too. That's oh. uh, one of my Hanukkah stories. The, uh, the latkes ask the cat to decide which one tastes best. Oh, so, if you want to know what which one is best, oh. you know, ask the cat. Yeah. <laughs> but all he says is meow. <laughs> I mean, that's that's I like writing for little kids. When too. is
0: that? When is that coming that out? Should
1: be coming out this uh, fall as well.
0: You're going to be a busy lo- book launcher this fall.
1: Well, I would hope so. And the yeah. next book we're talking about this is still in the talking stages. I want to do a big adventure. Uh, you know, set about the ninth century where we travel in caravans across the sea, across Central oh, Asia. We're going to call it Maze of the Mummies. And lots, lots of adventure. I like adventure stories. There was a British writer who I don't think anybody reads anymore because he was an old imperialist, but a wonderful writer. And his name was H. Ryder Haggard. And even my professor of English back in college despised him. But, <laughs> but I thought I thought his books were wonderful. I just like adventure. I'm not adventurous myself, but uh, to read a book, I love yeah. going out. Is a great explorer something I'd never mm-hmm. do in real life because it's uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> you go on a lot of travels. I've yeah, been on I your go. social media. Yeah, but I get tra- around.
1: I'm a tourist. I stay in a hotel. I'm not a camel crossing the desert.
0: Well, I mean, you know, it's kind of hard to get a camel and and go around the world these days. So we all have to get on those jetliners. But
1: one thing I would say in closing is, I mean, we learn to read to read books. And that's the only reason we learn to read, not to pass tests, not to get high grades. Mm -hmm. We learn to read. And that's the important thing. Reading is knowledge. Reading opens up the world. And we need to make books available to kids so they can acquire that knowledge. And the books have to be beautiful and exciting so that they'll they'll want to read. Because nowadays, there's plenty of competition for media. Just turn Mm -hmm. on the video and off you go. You don't have to do a thing but reading mm-hmm. a book requires work. Your reading skills have to be up there and you also have to think about what you read. There's no easy answer. I remember talking to someone who was in the film industry and why, are, why do blockbusters and superheroes do so well? It's because they translate easily. You can show them in Asia, you can show them all around the world. You don't need to know much about American culture. But more subtle films, more subtle uh, projects uh, that require knowledge of all the nuances don't translate that well or don't carry Mm -hmm. across borders, which is why those projects sometimes languish and the big money is to be made in something with massive appeal. And uh, I understand that from an economic point of view, but uh, let's not forget the things that are not necessarily going to be blockbusters, that are jewels in their own right. The greatest diamonds are not necessarily the biggest ones. It's the ones that are purest and the clearest.
0: Thank you so much for your time, for your insight and your wisdom, Eric.
1: Oh, anytime.
0: Thank you very much again, Eric. Until I see you next time here on my podcast.
1: I'll look forward to it, Minna. This was wonderful, and let's definitely do it again. Thank you.